If you would turn in your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. One of the most familiar passages in the Gospels contains what we know as the Beatitudes. They're found at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. It's called the Sermon on the Mount, as we will see, because of where it took place. Look, if you would, in Matthew chapter 5, the first 12 verses. Now when he, that is Jesus, saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There are some who argue that this is actually a collection of sayings, a collection of isolated sayings of Jesus. I don't agree. I think that what we find at the beginning of this chapter is something that indicates it was given at one time. It was on a mountainside and Jesus was speaking. As a traveling teacher, Jesus probably repeated himself, and I would argue, many times. I think the picture we have in our heads for some reason is that whatever we read Jesus saying in one place, that was it. He said it once and he never said it again. I don't think that that's the case. I think that Jesus may have preached the Sermon on the Mount or portions of it time and time again as he traveled throughout Galilee and Judea. There were specific instances in which he had conversations with people which were unique to that situation. You think of Zacchaeus, you think of Nicodemus, uh, the Samaritan woman. And yet even what he said to them has meaning for us, it applies to us. Um, but we should not imagine that Jesus said something and that was it, because now it's, it's there, it's out there, and he will never repeat himself again. Now, part of the reason I think that people think this is because in Luke chapter 6, we have what seems to be a sh a, uh, an abbreviated, a shrunken form of the Sermon on the Mount. There are differences, though, including the location, because Luke tells us that Jesus was on a level place. It's oftentimes called the Sermon on the Plain. Um, again, I think that Matthew and Luke are talking about two separate sermons, two separate occasions, two separate locations. As we begin, we need to ask ourselves, who was Jesus speaking to? Because if you look at at the end of verse number one, it says his disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying. And so some would say that Jesus is only speaking to the disciples, the, that is the twelve. This is unlikely because as Matthew tells the story, at this point Jesus has only called four of the twelve. Plus, if you look at the end of the sermon, at the end of Matthew chapter seven, 
when Jesus had finished the, saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. So it was a crowd. It wasn't just the disciples. But who made up this crowd? If you go to the end of chapter 4, which leads up to chapter 5, beginning in verse number 23, we read, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread over Syria, all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region beyond, or across the Jordan, followed him. I think what we find in the crowds that were listening to this sermon are those who are broken, those who have suffered, those who perhaps were still in pain or may have been in pain, those who are despairing. And so it is striking that at the beginning of the sermon, Jesus starts with the word blessed. I hope this does not sound uh, wrong, but I think if I were reorganizing this sermon, I wouldn't have started with the Beatitudes because I think the heart of the sermon is actually begins in verse number 13 when he talks about you are the, si the salt of the earth. And um, I think that that's really what the sermon revolves around. Uh, I assume Jesus knew what he was doing when he began with the Beatitudes. Verses 3 to 11 contain the Beatitudes. Each one begins with the word blessed. We call them the Beatitudes because the word in Latin is beatus, for blessed, and thus we have the Beatitudes. There are two things worth noting before we get into this. First of all, the form of the Beatitude is not unique to this sermon. It is actually found in the book of Psalms. Let me just read to you some examples. The book of Psalms itself begins with the beatitude, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. Psalm 32, blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Psalm 65, blessed are those you choose and bring near to live in your courts. We are filled with the good things of your house and of your holy temple. Psalm 84, O Lord Almighty, blessed is the man who trusts in you. And then Psalm 144, blessed are the people of whom this is true. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. It's a familiar form, and particularly to Jesus' audience as he spoke the Sermon on the Mount, they knew the form of the beatitude. But with it came certain expectations, and this is the second thing. The concept of blessedness was also familiar to his audience. Generally speaking, and we looked at this about a year and a half ago, bestowing of good is what is seen as a blessing. When we hear of God blessing someone, he bestows some good thing on them. And so a beatitude carries with it an expectation of God bestowing some good thing, some blessing on a person or on people. Some have argued that the beatitudes, particularly in this sermon, are based on Isaiah 61. 
Isaiah 61. And let me read to you. After his baptism and after his temptation in the wilderness, we read, this is in Luke 4, he, that is Jesus, went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is what Jesus said to his townmates, the people he had grown up with, grown up around. I would argue that what we find in the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus saying in another way, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Because he begins by proclaiming the Lord's favor with the Beatitudes. And the audience is ready. Some of these people had suffered and have been healed. They want to hear what Jesus has to say. I think some of them still need to be healed, have not yet been healed. They are broken. They are in despair. And so they hear the word blessed as Jesus begins to teach. They know the form. They have expectations of God's favor being poured out on them. I can almost imagine a group of people sitting together. And as Jesus begins to speak, begins to preach and he says blessed and someone poking his buddy and said this is going to be good this is going to be good stuff and what Jesus says is completely contrary to their expectations what he says next is not what they are expecting I would argue that it's still the same for us today those of us who are raised in church we know the Beatitudes at some point maybe even memorize them but the word blessed or bless or blessing, we have certain expectations. And I think I could do an entire series on these words. In fact, I have. And yet when we hear the word blessed, our minds go in a different direction than what we hear from Jesus. Jesus begins and says, blessed are the poor in spirit. You know, when you think of someone who is blessed by God, do you think of someone who is poor or poor in spirit? I think our minds go in the opposite direction. The poor may be thought of as neglected by God or perhaps even rejected by God. That's why they're poor. We certainly don't see them as blessed. We don't see them as the recipients of God's favor. By the way, just a side note to, to clear things up. In the account in Luke, Jesus said, blessed are the poor. And here in Matthew, chapter 5, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. So is it poor or poor in spirit? Um, the passage that Jesus read from in his hometown in Isaiah 61 speaks of the poor. So again, which one is it? I actually think there's not a conflict at all. In Matthew 11, John the Baptist is in prison. And he's heard about Jesus. I mean, he baptized him. But I think that 
what Jesus was doing was what, not what John expected. I think John expected something much more radical. And so he sent some of his disciples to talk to Jesus. Are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. I think the question we should ask is not, is it the poor or the poor in spirit, is what does Jesus mean and to whom is he referring? The word that Jesus uses doesn't simply refer to someone who is in poverty, someone who is poor. Rather, it indicates someone who is a beggar, someone who cringes or cowers, someone who is either fearful or dependent on others to survive. It isn't simply someone who is lower class, if you wish. This is someone who has no means of support. He or she is a beggar. So Jesus is not speaking of passive poverty, of being in the lower socioeconomic stratum, if you wish. He's speaking of someone who actively knows, I am poor, someone who is a beggar, someone who is utterly dependent upon God. This is what we find in the Psalms time and time again. Jesus is speaking of those who know that they are poor. Psalm 40, David says, Yet I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my help and my deliverer. O my God, do not delay. In Isaiah 57, For this is what the high and lofty one says, He who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. It might help us, it does in other cases, to look at the opposite of what it means to be poor, to have a better understanding of what is going on. In scripture, what does it mean to be rich? What does it mean to be rich? Generally, it refers or it points to a sense of self-sufficiency, that someone thinks they've got it made. They have all that they need, they don't need anyone else. They don't even need God's favor. They don't need to be blessed. They have all that they want. In some sense, a striving to be rich is to achieve a sense of invulnerability. That in fact, your life will not encounter any unforeseen possibilities. You will not have any bumps in the road there will be no surprises, no mysteries, no unknowns. Everything will happen just as you think that it should. What feeds this illusion, if you wish, is material wealth. That if I have enough money, then I can smooth out whatever bumps there are in the road. And if there are some occasional surprises, I'm able to deal with them because I have the financial wherewithal to do so. As Jesus begins to proclaim the good news, as he says to people, today this is fulfilled in your hearing, he calls his listeners, he calls us to a life of poverty, an acknowledging of our true state. Why does, why does he say poor in spirit? Particularly if there's no difference between being poor or poor in spirit, why not simply say blessed are the poor? Um, the phrase poor in spirit, 
speaks of the inner person, that which cannot be seen, but it also speaks of in truth or truly. That is, Jesus is saying that those who are in truth poor, those who look to God, who are dependent upon him, they are the ones who are blessed. Most human beings, I think, whether we are rich or poor, middle class, lower class, it doesn't matter. It is a tendency to seek to be secure apart from God. And as such, we are not poor in spirit. We are, in fact, poor. We just don't realize that we are. The poor do not always want to remain in ongoing poverty. They do not always want to have to rely on others. We don't always want to have to ask somebody else for help. We don't want to be dependent upon someone else. We want to be self-reliant, self-sufficient. We want to be independent. We want to be rich, not poor. But God's favor rests on those who rely on him, those who are poor in spirit, those who realize that they have nothing of their own to sustain them. The reality is no one can, in fact, sustain himself or herself. People who think that they do or they can are deluded. They are living a lie. Okay, let's say for the sake of argument that Jesus is right. What is the blessedness? What is the blessing that comes from being poor in spirit? Well, if you look at the second part of the verse, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, that sounds good, but what does it mean? What does it mean? To remind you, Jesus is saying in this sermon that he is the fulfillment of scripture. Today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament law and prophets. He is the good news. It is worth noting that in this verse, verse 3 and in verse number 10, we find the same blessing for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the tense of the verb is present. Unlike the other Beatitudes, for they will be comforted, they will inherit the earth, they will be filled, they will be shown mercy, they will see God, they will be called sons of God. Jesus is speaking of a present reality. The promises of the Old Testament are fulfilled today, Jesus is saying. The time is now. The favor of God rests. It is seen in the person of Jesus. This is the good news. So why does Jesus start the Sermon on the Mount with these words? Why is poverty the starting point? Why is it so fundamental to the gospel of the kingdom? Well, you see, until we recognize our poverty, we are not capable of receiving God's grace. When a person sees himself or herself as rich, then there is no place for favor, for God's grace to be given to them. If your hands are full of things, then where is the room for God's grace? There is no room for it. You cannot receive. You can't take anything else on. You can't hold on to any more. We must, in fact, see ourselves as poor, our hands as empty. We sang the hymn today, Rock of Ages. One of the verses that said, In my hand no price I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Francis Schaeffer used to talk about raising the empty hands of faith. Poor people have empty hands. 
Rich people have full hands and therefore there is no place for God's grace. They cannot be blessed. They cannot receive God's favor because they've got, uh, they imagine that they've got everything that they need. They need. Until we are emptied of self, God's grace or favor will not be poured out on us. Jesus would say later in Matthew, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. We need to recognize that we have an ongoing case of poverty. We will always in this lifetime need the grace of God. We will never be able to rely on ourselves. Should not imagine that we can sustain ourselves apart from God's grace. By the way, just everyone who is alive on this planet is sustained by the grace of God. Whether they're his people or not, we're made in his image. He sustains his creation. What Jesus calls his listeners, what he calls us to recognize is that the good news of the gospel requires that we recognize that we have empty hands. We might be deluded and think we have everything we need, but the reality is we are poor. Until we recognize our poverty, Christ will not be precious to us. Not until we see our needs do we see the value of something, something that is needed. See, I don't know about you, I'm not, I'm not overly fond of drinking water. I'm not a big water person. Unless I'm really thirsty. And then suddenly water becomes precious to me. If you're in the middle of a desert, water is very precious to you. Until we recognize our poverty in spirit. Yeah, it's, it's nice what Jesus has done. But we will, in fact, not have any place. He will not be precious to us. It'd be like a condiment on the table while we're eating a meal, rather than something that sustains us and gives us life. Until we recognize our poverty, we cannot be a part of the kingdom of heaven. You see, when we are swollen with a sense of self-sufficiency, we are not able to get through the narrow gate. We're not able to get through the eye of the needle. We cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. That is why we need to recognize our true condition, our real poverty. It's very real. We just don't recognize it so often. One might ask, okay, Damon, this sounds good, but how do I know if I am poor in spirit? How do I know if I have a sense of my poverty? Well, I think, first of all, a love of Christ should mark our poverty. He is the clothing to cover our nakedness. He is the water to quench our thirst. He is the blood that gives us life. He is the wisdom from God. He is our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. When we find our love for Christ waning, don't be surprised if, in fact, we no longer consider ourselves poor but have a sense of self-sufficiency. I think tied to a love for Christ is a love for Scripture because it is in Scripture that we learn of Him. I think also a lack of satisfaction with yourself and your spiritual condition. Now, we should not deny God's grace, that God is working in our lives, but there should be a desire, I think, for more grace. We should have, I think, a painful realization that we lack more than we realize in spite of all that Jesus has done for us. 
might say, wait a minute, I, I don't like this. Because God's grace is sufficient. If he has given me his grace, then I am full. Am I not full? Why do I need to be poor in spirit? Let's use this analogy. Are you breathing? Have you breathed in the last minute? Wasn't that enough? Why are you still breathing? If you breathed in the last minute, why are you still breathing? So it is with God's grace. We, shall not, we should not say, yes, I've received God's grace, and so I'm fine. I'm just sort of coast into heaven. I, I'm, I've got it made. The fact is, we, in the same way that we need to keep breathing, we keep needing the grace of God. He has given us life. He has given us what we need. He is the one to sustain it. And we need to recognize that instead of saying, well, you know what? I was raised in a Christian family. I've been a Christian all my life, and I'm fine. Instead of saying, I am poor in spirit. I need the grace of God. I think another thing that shows that we have a sense of our poverty is a desire to pray. Here I find this deeply convicting. A person of poverty is always asking, he or she does this in prayer. It is the self-sufficient who find it hard to pray, who find it a burden, who find it a routine that they want to avoid. But a person who recognizes, apart from the grace of God, I've got nothing, and I need God's grace breath after breath after breath. Such a person, uh, prayer is a bother, or it simply becomes routine. I asked earlier, why does Jesus start the Sermon on the Mount with these words? Why is poverty the starting point? Why is it so fundamental to the gospel? The first beatitude is, in fact, the goal of every subsequent statement that follows in the Sermon on the Mount. It is the source of the ability to live it. We'll, we'll come to this, I think, in the weeks to come. But there are some people who have argued that the Sermon on the Mount does not apply to us. It will apply to a future time in, a time in, the, in the future, uh, in the Millennial Kingdom or something like that. But that, it's just too hard for us right now. It's an, ideal, an idealized kingdom of heaven. Well, if we start with being poor in spirit and recognize that apart from the grace of God, we cannot do what he calls us to do, then I think we see that, no, this is in fact how we are supposed to live. We fail miserably, but we recognize, yeah, because I'm poor in spirit, and we turn to Christ moment by moment for his strength. Living when and where we do, these words, I think, are difficult to hear. But we need to hear these words. We live in a very prosperous culture. When it seems that we are almost able to buy anything, a better education, health care, insurance, insurance, by the way, for any and all types of contingencies. So we begin to have a sense of being rich and self-sufficient. I've got it covered. 
we need to hear the words, blessed are the poor in spirit. Plus, there's something else. I think in our culture, uh, we seem to worship the powerful individual who achieves the impossible. The one person who stands up against everything and he's able or she is able to accomplish the seemingly impossible. All of this is in the cultural air that we breathe. And it finds an ally, by the way, in our fallen natures. We like when we hear this. We're not so keen to hear, blessed are the poor in spirit. And instead of breathing in the person of Christ, we breathe in self-sufficiency. And we become so swollen that we cannot get through the narrow gate. Sadly, the church, because it's made up of human beings like us, has fallen into the trap of desiring to be rich and ignoring or rejecting the idea of poverty. We see this in the past. I think we see it in the present. In Revelation 3, uh, the angel, uh, the church at Laodicea, we hear this message, you say, I am rich. That's what the Laodiceans said. I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. The first beatitude sounds so strange to us today. I think for very different reasons than it sounded strange to its first hearers. The first hearers, they were ready to jump on this blessed. They want the blessing. What is it? What is it? And then to hear it, what's the poor in spirit? That's not what they were expecting. We know it, and I think we ignore it because we see ourselves as able to take care of ourselves. The culture calls us to be rich. If we're not careful, the church may tell us to be rich. But Jesus calls us to be poor, to always look to him. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We are grateful for what you have done in our lives. But we confess that the notion of being poor is repugnant to us. It is a sign of failure, culturally, economically. But also it would seem to indicate that you had turned your back on us if we are poor. Help us to hear the words of Jesus by your spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. By your spirit, help us to see our true poverty, that we are to rely upon you. We are to look to you all the time. We really don't think much of people who are dependent. It's when we describe someone as dependent, it's usually not a good thing. And so when we hear the words of Jesus, it really rubs us the wrong way. But this is the good news. Jesus would say, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He came to preach the good news. He is the good news. Instead of seeking to fill our hands with all sorts of things, may they be empty 
so that we might receive your grace. May your spirit work in our hearts. May you open our, our eyes to see our true poverty. I thank you that you brought us together today to worship you, to be with our brothers and sisters. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. We thank you on this day for the birthdays, for the reminders of your faithfulness, for Grant, for Gracie, for Mabel coming up. How good you are to us. May we never forget that we are dependent, that we are poor. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would turn in your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. One of the most familiar passages in the Gospels contains what we know as the Beatitudes. And they're found at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. It's called the Sermon on the Mount, as we will see, because of where it took place. Look, if you would, in Matthew chapter 5, the first 12 verses. Now when he, that is Jesus, saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There are some who argue that this is actually a collection of sayings, a collection of isolated sayings of Jesus. I don't agree. I think that what we find at the beginning of this chapter is something that indicates it was given at one time. It was on a mountainside and Jesus was speaking. As a traveling teacher, Jesus probably repeated himself, and I would argue many times. I think the picture we have in our heads for some reason is that whatever we read Jesus saying in one place, that was it. He said it once and he never said it again. I don't think that that's the case. I think that Jesus may have preached the Sermon on the Mount or portions of it time and time again as he traveled throughout Galilee and Judea. There were specific instances in which he had conversations with people which were unique to that situation. You think of Zacchaeus, you think of Nicodemus, uh, the Samaritan woman. And yet even what he said to them has meaning for us, it applies to us. Um, but we should not imagine that Jesus said something and that was it, because now it's, it's there, it's out there, and he will never repeat himself again. 
Now, part of the reason I think that people think this is because in Luke chapter 6, we have what seems to be a sh a, uh, an abbreviated, a shrunken form of the Sermon on the Mount. There are differences, though, including the location, because Luke tells us that Jesus was on a level place. It's oftentimes called the Sermon on the Plain. Um, again, I think that Matthew and Luke are talking about two separate sermons, two separate occasions, two separate locations. As we begin, we need to ask ourselves, who was Jesus speaking to? Because if you look at the end of verse number one, it says his disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying. And so some would say that Jesus is only speaking to the disciples, the, that is the twelve. This is unlikely because as Matthew tells the story, at this point Jesus has only called four of the twelve. Plus, if you look at the end of the sermon, at the end of Matthew chapter seven, when Jesus had finished the, saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. So it was a crowd. It wasn't just the disciples. But who made up this crowd? If you go to the end of chapter 4, which leads up to chapter 5, beginning in verse number 23, we read, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread over Syria, all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region beyond or across the Jordan followed him. I think what we find in the crowds that were listening to this sermon are those who are broken, those who have suffered those who perhaps were still in pain, or may have been in pain, those who are despairing. And so it is striking that at the beginning of the sermon, Jesus starts with the word blessed. I hope this does not sound uh, wrong, but I think if I were reorganizing this sermon, I wouldn't have started with the Beatitudes, because I think the heart of the sermon this actually begins in verse number 13, when he talks about you are the, si the salt of the earth. And um, I think that that's really what the sermon revolves around. Uh, I assume Jesus knew what he was doing when he began with the Beatitudes. Verses 3 to 11 contain the Beatitudes. Each one begins with the word blessed. We call them the Beatitudes because the word in Latin is beatus, for blessed, and thus we have the Beatitudes. There are two things worth noting before we get into this. First of all, the form of the Beatitude is not unique to this sermon. It is actually found in the book of Psalms. Let me just read to you some examples. The book of Psalms itself begins with the Beatitude, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Psalm 32, blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Psalm 65, blessed are those you choose and bring near to live in your courts. We are filled with the good things of your house and of your holy temple. Psalm 84, O Lord Almighty, 
Blessed is the man who trusts in you. And then Psalm 144, blessed are the people of whom this is true. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. It's a familiar form, and particularly to Jesus' audience as he spoke the Sermon on the Mount, they knew the form of the Beatitude. But with it came certain expectations, and this is the second thing. The concept of blessedness was also familiar to his audience. Generally speaking, and we looked at this about a year and a half ago, bestowing of good is what is seen as a blessing. When we hear of God blessing someone, he bestows some good thing on them. And so a beatitude carries with it an expectation of God bestowing some good thing, some blessing on a person or on people. Some have argued that the beatitudes, particularly in this sermon, are based on Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61. Let me read to you. After his baptism and after his temptation in the wilderness, we read, this is in Luke 4, he, that is Jesus, went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is what Jesus said to his townmates, the people he had grown up with, grown up around. I would argue that what we find in the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus saying in another way, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Because he begins by proclaiming the Lord's favor with the Beatitudes. And the audience is ready. Some of these people had suffered and have been healed. They want to hear what Jesus has to say. I think some of them still need to be healed, have not yet been healed. They are broken. They are in despair. And so they hear the word blessed as Jesus begins to teach. They know the form. They have expectations of God's favor being poured out on them. I can almost imagine a group of people sitting together. And as Jesus begins to speak, begins to preach, and he says, blessed, and someone poking his buddy and said, this is going to be good. This is going to be good stuff. And what Jesus says is completely contrary to their expectations. What he says next is not what they are expecting. I would argue that it's still the same for us today. Those of us who are raised in church, we know the Beatitudes, at some point maybe even memorize them. But the word blessed or bless or blessing, we have certain expectations. And I think I could do an entire series on these words. In fact, I have. And yet when we hear the word blessed, our minds go in a different direction than what we hear from Jesus. Jesus begins and says, blessed are the poor in spirit. You know, when you think of someone who is blessed by God, 
Do you think of someone who is poor or poor in spirit? I think our minds go in the opposite direction. The poor may be thought of as neglected by God or perhaps even rejected by God. That's why they're poor. We certainly don't see them as blessed. We don't see them as the recipients of God's favor. By the way, just a side note to, to clear things up. In the account in Luke, Jesus said, blessed are the poor. And here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. So is it poor or poor in spirit? Um, the passage that Jesus read from in his hometown in Isaiah 61 speaks of the poor. So again, which one is it? I actually think there's not a conflict at all. In Matthew 11, John the Baptist is in prison, and he's heard about Jesus, I and mean, he baptized him, but I think that what Jesus was doing was what, not what John expected. I think John expected something much more radical, and so he sent some of his disciples to talk to Jesus. Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. I think the question we should ask is not, is it the poor or the poor in spirit, is what does Jesus mean and to whom is he referring? The word that Jesus uses doesn't simply refer to someone who is in poverty, someone who is poor. Rather, it indicates someone who is a beggar, someone who cringes or cowers, someone who is either fearful or dependent on others to survive. It isn't simply someone who is lower class, if you wish. This is someone who has no means of support. He or she is a beggar. So Jesus is not speaking of passive poverty, of being in the lower socioeconomic stratum, if you wish. He's speaking of someone who actively knows, I am poor, someone who is a beggar, someone who is utterly dependent upon God. This is what we find in the Psalms time and time again. Jesus is speaking of those who know that they are poor. Psalm 40, David says, yet I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Oh my God, do not delay. In Isaiah 57, for this is what the high and lofty one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. It might help us, it does in other cases, to look at the opposite of what it means to be poor, to have a better understanding of what is going on. In scripture, what does it mean to be rich? What does it mean to be rich? Generally, it refers or it points to a sense of self-sufficiency, that someone thinks they've got it made. They have all that they need. They don't need anyone else. They don't even need God's favor. They don't need to be blessed. They have all that they want. In some sense, a striving to be rich is to achieve a sense of invulnerability. That in fact, your life will not encounter any unforeseen possibilities. You will not have any bumps in the road. 
There will be no surprises, no mysteries, no unknowns. Everything will happen just as you think that it should. What feeds this illusion, if you wish, is material wealth. That if I have enough money, then I can smooth out whatever bumps there are in the road. And if there are some occasional surprises, I'm able to deal with them because I have the financial wherewithal to do so. As Jesus begins to proclaim the good news, as he says to people, today this is fulfilled in your hearing, he calls his listeners, he calls us to a life of poverty, an acknowledging of our true state. Why does, why does he say poor in spirit? Particularly if there's no difference between being poor or poor in spirit, why not simply say blessed are the poor? Um, the phrase poor in spirit speaks of the inner person, that which cannot be seen, but it also speaks of in truth or truly. That is, Jesus is saying that those who are in truth poor, those who look to God, who are dependent upon him, they are the ones who are blessed. Most human beings, I think, whether we are rich or poor, middle class, lower class, it doesn't matter. It is a tendency to seek to be secure apart from God. And as such, we are not poor in spirit. We are, in fact, poor. We just don't realize that we are. The poor do not always want to remain in ongoing poverty. They do not always want to have to rely on others. We don't always want to have to ask somebody else for help. We don't want to be dependent upon someone else. We want to be self-reliant, self-sufficient. We want to be independent. We want to be rich, not poor. But God's favor rests on those who rely on him, those who are poor in spirit, those who realize that they have nothing of their own to sustain them. The reality is no one can, in fact, sustain himself or herself. People who think that they do or they can are deluded. They are living a lie. Okay, let's say for the sake of argument that Jesus is right. What is the blessedness? What is the blessing that comes from being poor in spirit? Well, if you look at the second part of the verse, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, that sounds good, but what does it mean? What does it mean? To remind you, Jesus is saying in this sermon that he is the fulfillment of scripture. Today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament law and prophets. He is the good news. It is worth noting that in this verse, verse 3 and in verse number 10, we find the same blessing for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the tense of the verb is present. Unlike the other Beatitudes, for they will be comforted, they will inherit the earth, they will be filled, they will be shown mercy, they will see God, they will be called sons of God. Jesus is speaking of a present reality. The promises of the Old Testament are fulfilled today, Jesus is saying. The time is now. The favor of God rests. It is seen in the person of Jesus. This is the good news. So why does Jesus start the Sermon on the Mount with these words? Why is poverty the starting point? Why is it so fundamental to the gospel of the kingdom? 
Well, you see, until we recognize our poverty, we are not capable of receiving God's grace. When a person sees himself or herself as rich, then there is no place for favor, for God's grace to be given to them. If your hands are full of things, then where is the room for God's grace? There is no room for it. You cannot receive. You can't take anything else on. You can't hold on to any more. We must, in fact, see ourselves as poor, our hands as empty. We sang the hymn today, Rock of Ages. One of the verses that said, In my hand no price I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Francis Schaeffer used to talk about raising the empty hands of faith. Poor people have empty hands. Rich people have full hands, and therefore there is no place for God's grace. They cannot be blessed. They cannot receive God's favor because they've got, uh, they imagine that they've got everything that they need. They need. Until we are emptied of self, God's grace or favor will not be poured out on us. Jesus would say later in Matthew, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. We need to recognize that we have an ongoing case of poverty. We will always in this lifetime need the grace of God. We will never be able to rely on ourselves. We should not imagine that we can sustain ourselves apart from God's grace. By the way, just everyone who is alive on this planet is sustained by the grace of God, whether they're his people or not. We're made in his image. He sustains his creation. What Jesus calls his listeners, what he calls us to recognize, is that the good news of the gospel requires that we recognize that we have empty hands. We might be deluded and think we have everything we need, but the reality is we are poor. Until we recognize our poverty, Christ will not be precious to us. Not until we see our needs do we see the value of something, something that is needed. See, I don't know about you, I'm not, I'm not overly fond of drinking water. I'm not a big water person. Unless I'm really thirsty. And then suddenly water becomes precious to me. If you're in the middle of a desert, water is very precious to you. Until we recognize our poverty in spirit. Yeah, it's, it's nice what Jesus has done. But we will, in fact, not have any place. He will not be precious to us. It'd be like a condiment on the table while we're eating a meal, rather than something that sustains us and gives us life. Until we recognize our poverty, we cannot be a part of the kingdom of heaven. You see, when we are swollen with a sense of self-sufficiency, we are not able to get through the narrow gate. We're not able to get through the eye of the needle. We cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. That is why we need to recognize our true condition, our real poverty. It's very real. We just don't recognize it so often. One might ask, okay, Damon, this sounds good, but how do I know if I am poor in spirit? How do I know if I have a sense of my poverty? Well, I think, first of all, a love of Christ should mark our poverty. He is the clothing to cover our nakedness. 
He is the water to quench our thirst. He is the blood that gives us life. He is the wisdom from God. He is our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. When we find our love for Christ waning, don't be surprised if, in fact, we no longer consider ourselves poor, but have a sense of self-sufficiency. I think tied to a love for Christ is a love for Scripture because it is in Scripture that we learn of Him. I think also a lack of satisfaction with yourself and your spiritual condition. Now, we should not deny God's grace, that God is working in our lives, but there should be a desire, I think, for more grace. We should have, I think, a painful realization that we lack more than we realize, in spite of all that Jesus has done for us. You might say, wait a minute, I, I don't like this. Because God's grace is sufficient. If he has given me his grace, then I am full. Am I not full? Why do I need to be poor in spirit? Let's use this analogy. Are you breathing? Have you breathed in the last minute? Wasn't that enough? Why are you still breathing? If you breathed in the last minute, why are you still breathing? So it is with God's grace. We, shall not, we should not say, yes, I've received God's grace, and so I'm fine. I'm just sort of coast into heaven. I, I'm, I've got it made. The fact is, we, in the same way that we need to keep breathing, we keep needing the grace of God. He has given us life. He has given us what we need. He is the one to sustain it. And we need to recognize that instead of saying, well, you know what? I was raised in a Christian family. I've been a Christian all my life, and I'm fine. Instead of saying, I am poor in spirit. I need the grace of God. I think another thing that shows that we have a sense of our poverty is a desire to pray. Here I find this deeply convicting. A person of poverty is always asking, he or she does this in prayer. It is the self-sufficient who find it hard to pray, who find it a burden, who find it a routine that they want to avoid. But a person who recognizes, apart from the grace of God, I've got nothing. And I need God's grace breath after breath after breath. Such a person, uh, prayer is a bother. Or it simply becomes routine. I asked earlier, why does Jesus start the Sermon on the Mount with these words? Why is poverty the starting point? Why is it so fundamental to the gospel? The first beatitude is, in fact, the goal of every subsequent statement that follows in the Sermon on the Mount. It is the source of the ability to live it. We'll, we'll come to this, I think, in the weeks to come. But there are some people who have argued that the Sermon on the Mount does not apply to us. It will apply to a future time in, a time in, the, in the future, uh, in the millennial kingdom or something like that, but that, it's just too hard for us right now. It's an, ideal, an idealized kingdom of heaven. 
Well, if we start with being poor in spirit and recognize that apart from the grace of God, we cannot do what he calls us to do, then I think we see that, no, this is in fact how we are supposed to live. We fail miserably, but we recognize, yeah, because I'm poor in spirit, and we turn to Christ moment by moment for his strength. Living when and where we do, these words, I think, are difficult to hear. But we need to hear these words. We live in a very prosperous culture when it seems that we are almost able to buy anything, a better education, health care, insurance, insurance, by the way, for any and all types of contingencies. So we begin to have a sense of being rich and self-sufficient. I've got it covered. We need to hear the words, blessed are the poor in spirit. Plus, there's something else. I think in our culture, uh, we seem to worship the powerful individual who achieves the impossible. The one person who stands up against everything and he's able or she is able to accomplish the seemingly impossible. All of this is in the cultural air that we breathe. And it finds an ally, by the way, in our fallen natures. We like when we hear this. We're not so keen to hear, blessed are the poor in spirit. And instead of breathing in the person of Christ, we breathe in self-sufficiency. And we become so swollen that we cannot get through the narrow gate. Sadly, the church, because it's made up of human beings like us, has fallen into the trap of desiring to be rich and ignoring or rejecting the idea of poverty. We see this in the past. I think we see it in the present. In Revelation 3, uh, the angel, uh, the church at Laodicea, we hear this message, you say, I am rich. That's what the Laodiceans said. I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. The first beatitude sounds so strange to us today. I think for very different reasons than it sounded strange to its first hearers. The first hearers, they were ready to jump on this blessed. They want the blessing. What is it? What is it? And then to hear it, what's the poor in spirit? That's not what they were expecting. We know it, and I think we ignore it because we see ourselves as able to take care of ourselves. The culture calls us to be rich. If we're not careful, the church may tell us to be rich. But Jesus calls us to be poor, to always look to him. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We are grateful for what you have done in our lives. But we confess that the notion of being poor is repugnant to us. It is a sign of failure, culturally, economically. But also it would seem to indicate that you had turned your back on us if we are poor. Help us to hear the words of Jesus. 
by your spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. By your spirit, help us to see our true poverty, that we are to rely upon you. We are to look to you all the time. We really don't think much of people who are dependent. When we describe someone as dependent, it's usually not a good thing. And so when we hear the words of Jesus, it really rubs us the wrong way. But this is the good news. As Jesus would say, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He came to preach the good news. He is the good news. Instead of seeking to fill our hands with all sorts of things, may they be empty so that we might receive your grace. May your spirit work in our hearts. May you open our, our eyes to see our true poverty. I thank you that you brought us together today to worship you to be with our brothers and sisters. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. We thank you on this day for the birthdays, for the reminders of your faithfulness, for Grant, for Gracie, for Mabel coming up. How good you are to us. May we never forget that we are dependent, that we are poor, pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would turn in your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. One of the most familiar passages in the Gospels contains what we know as the Beatitudes. And they're found at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. It's called the Sermon on the Mount, as we will see, because of where it took place. Look, if you would, in Matthew chapter 5, the first 12 verses. Now when he, that is Jesus, saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There are some who argue that this is actually a collection of sayings, a collection of isolated sayings of Jesus. I don't agree. I think that what we find at the beginning of this chapter 
is something that indicates it was given at one time. It was on a mountainside and Jesus was speaking. As a traveling teacher, Jesus probably repeated himself, and I would argue many times. I think the picture we have in our heads for some reason is that whatever we read Jesus saying in one place, that was it. He said it once and he never said it again. I don't think that that's the case. I think that Jesus may have preached the Sermon on the Mount or portions of it time and time again as he traveled throughout Galilee and Judea. There were specific instances in which he had conversations with people which were unique to that situation. You think of Zacchaeus, you think of Nicodemus, uh, the Samaritan woman. And yet even what he said to them has meaning for us, it applies to us. Um, but we should not imagine that Jesus said something and that was it, because now it's, it's there, it's out there, and he will never repeat himself again. Now, part of the reason I think that people think this is because in Luke chapter 6, we have what seems to be a sh a, uh, an abbreviated, a shrunken form of the Sermon on the Mount. There are differences, though, including the location, because Luke tells us that Jesus was on a level place. It's oftentimes called the Sermon on the Plain. Um, again, I think that Matthew and Luke are talking about two separate sermons, two separate occasions, two separate locations. As we begin, we need to ask ourselves, who was Jesus speaking to? Because if you look at the end of verse number one, it says his disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying. And so some would say that Jesus is only speaking to the disciples, the, that is the twelve. This is unlikely because as Matthew tells the story, at this point Jesus has only called four of the twelve. Plus, if you look at the end of the sermon, at the end of Matthew chapter seven, when Jesus had finished the, saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. So it was a crowd. It wasn't just the disciples. But who made up this crowd? If you go to the end of chapter 4, which leads up to chapter 5, beginning in verse number 23, we read, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread over Syria, all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region beyond, or across the Jordan, followed him. I think what we find in the crowds that were listening to this sermon are those who are broken, those who have suffered, those who perhaps were still in pain or may have been in pain, those who are despairing. And so it is striking that at the beginning of the sermon, Jesus starts with the word blessed. I hope this does not sound uh, wrong. But I think if I were reorganizing this sermon, I wouldn't have started with the Beatitudes. Because I think the heart of the sermon is actually begins in verse number 13, when he talks about you are the, si the salt of the earth. And um, I think that that's really what the sermon revolves around. Uh, I assume Jesus knew what he was doing when he began with the Beatitudes. 
Verses 3 to 11 contain the Beatitudes. Each one begins with the word blessed. We call them the Beatitudes because the word in Latin is beatus for blessed, and thus we have the Beatitudes. There are two things worth noting before we get into this. First of all, the form of the Beatitude is not unique to this sermon. It is actually found in the book of Psalms. Let me just read to you some examples. The book of Psalms itself begins with the Beatitude, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. Psalm 32, blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Psalm 65, blessed are those you choose and bring near to live in your courts. We are filled with the good things of your house and of your holy temple. Psalm 84, O Lord Almighty, blessed is the man who trusts in you. And then Psalm 144, blessed are the people of whom this is true. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. It's a familiar form, and particularly to Jesus' audience as he spoke the Sermon on the Mount, they knew the form of the Beatitude. But with it came certain expectations, and this is the second thing. The concept of blessedness was also familiar to his audience. Generally speaking, and we looked at this about a year and a half ago, bestowing of good is what is seen as a blessing. When we hear of God blessing someone, he bestows some good thing on them. And so a beatitude carries with it an expectation of God bestowing some good thing, some blessing on a person or on people. Some have argued that the Beatitudes, particularly in this sermon, are based on Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61. Let me read to you. After his baptism and after his temptation in the wilderness, we read, this is in Luke 4, he, that is Jesus, went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is what Jesus said to his townmates, the people he had grown up with, grown up around. I would argue that what we find in the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus saying in another way, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing because he begins by proclaiming the Lord's favor with the Beatitudes. And the audience is ready. Some of these people had suffered and have been healed. They want to hear what Jesus has to say. I think some of them still need to be healed, have not yet been healed. They are broken. They are in despair. And so they hear the word blessed as Jesus begins to teach. They know the form they have expectations of God's favor being poured out on them. 
can almost imagine a group of people sitting together and as Jesus begins to speak, begins to preach, and he says, blessed, and someone poking his buddy and said, this is going to be good. This is going to be good stuff. And what Jesus says is completely contrary to their expectations. What he says next is not what they are expecting. I would argue that it's still the same for us today. Those of us who are raised in church, we know the Beatitudes at some point, maybe even memorize them. But the word blessed or bless or blessing, we have certain expectations. And I think I could do an entire series on these words. In fact, I have. And yet when we hear the word blessed, our minds go in a different direction than what we hear from Jesus. Jesus begins and says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. You know, when you think of someone who is blessed by God, do you think of someone who is poor or poor in spirit? I think our minds go in the opposite direction. The poor may be thought of as neglected by God or perhaps even rejected by God. That's why they're poor. We certainly don't see them as blessed. We don't see them as the recipients of God's favor. By the way, just a side note to, to clear things up. In the account in Luke, Jesus said, blessed are the poor. And here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. So is it poor or poor in spirit? Um, the passage that Jesus read from in his hometown in Isaiah 61 speaks of the poor. So again, which one is it? I actually think there's not a conflict at all. In Matthew 11, John the Baptist is in prison, and he's heard about Jesus, I and mean, he baptized him, but I think that what Jesus was doing was what, not what John expected. I think John expected something much more radical, and so he sent some of his disciples to talk to Jesus. Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. I think the question we should ask is not, is it the poor or the poor in spirit, is what does Jesus mean and to whom is he referring? The word that Jesus uses doesn't simply refer to someone who is in poverty someone who is poor. Rather, it indicates someone who is a beggar, someone who cringes or cowers, someone who is either fearful or dependent on others to survive. It isn't simply someone who is lower class, if you wish. This is someone who has no means of support. He or she is a beggar. So Jesus is not speaking of passive poverty, of being in the lower socioeconomic stratum, if you wish. He's speaking of someone who actively knows, I am poor, someone who is a beggar, someone who is utterly dependent upon God. This is what we find in the Psalms time and time again. Jesus is speaking of those who know that they are poor. Psalm 40, David says, yet I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Oh my God, do not delay. 
in Isaiah 57, for this is what the high and lofty one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. It might help us, it does in other cases, to look at the opposite of what it means to be poor, to have a better understanding of what is going on. In scripture, what does it mean to be rich? What does it mean to be rich? Generally, it refers or it points to a sense of self-sufficiency, that someone thinks they've got it made. They have all that they need. They don't need anyone else. They don't even need God's favor. They don't need to be blessed. They have all that they want. In some sense, a striving to be rich is to achieve a sense of invulnerability. That in fact, your life will not encounter any unforeseen possibilities. You will not have any bumps in the road. There will be no surprises, no mysteries, no unknowns. Everything will happen just as you think that it should. What feeds this illusion, if you wish, is material wealth. That if I have enough money, then I can smooth out whatever bumps there are in the road. And if there are some occasional surprises, I'm able to deal with them because I have the financial wherewithal to do so. As Jesus begins to proclaim the good news, as he says to people, today this is fulfilled in your hearing, he calls his listeners, he calls us to a life of poverty, an acknowledging of our true state. Why does, why does he say poor in spirit? Particularly if there's no difference between being poor or poor in spirit, why not simply say blessed are the poor? Um, the phrase poor in spirit speaks of the inner person, that which cannot be seen, but it also speaks of in truth or truly. That is, Jesus is saying that those who are in truth poor, those who look to God, who are dependent upon him, they are the ones who are blessed. Most human beings, I think, whether we are rich or poor, middle class, lower class, it doesn't matter. It is a tendency to seek to be secure apart from God. And as such, we are not poor in spirit. We are, in fact, poor. We just don't realize that we are. The poor do not always want to remain in ongoing poverty. They do not always want to have to rely on others. We don't always want to have to ask somebody else for help. We don't want to be dependent upon someone else. We want to be self-reliant, self-sufficient. We want to be independent. We want to be rich, not poor. But God's favor rests on those who rely on him those who are poor in spirit, those who realize that they have nothing of their own to sustain them. The reality is no one can, in fact, sustain himself or herself. People who think that they do or they can are deluded. They are living a lie. Okay, let's say for the sake of argument that Jesus is right. What is the blessedness? What is the blessing that comes from being poor in spirit? Well, if you look at the second part of the verse, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, that sounds good, but what does it mean? 
What does it mean? To remind you, Jesus is saying in this sermon that he is the fulfillment of scripture. Today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament law and prophets. He is the good news. It is worth noting that in this verse, verse 3 and in verse number 10, we find the same blessing for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the tense of the verb is present. Unlike the other Beatitudes, for they will be comforted. They will inherit the earth. They will be filled. They will be shown mercy. They will see God. They will be called sons of God. Jesus is speaking of a present reality. The promises of the Old Testament are fulfilled today, Jesus is saying. The time is now. The favor of God rests. It is seen in the person of Jesus. This is the good news. So why does Jesus start the Sermon on the Mount with these words? Why is poverty the starting point? Why is it so fundamental to the gospel of the kingdom? Well, you see, until we recognize our poverty, we are not capable of receiving God's grace. When a person sees himself or herself as rich, then there is no place for favor, for God's grace to be given to them. If your hands are full of things, then where is the room for God's grace? There is no room for it. You cannot receive. You can't take anything else on. You can't hold on to any more. We must, in fact, see ourselves as poor, our hands as empty. We sang the hymn today, Rock of Ages. One of the verses that said, In my hand no price I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Francis Schaeffer used to talk about raising the empty hands of faith. Poor people have empty hands. Rich people have full hands, and therefore there is no place for God's grace. They cannot be blessed. They cannot receive God's favor because they've got, they imagine that they've got everything that they need. They need. Until we are emptied of self, God's grace or favor will not be poured out on us. Jesus would say later in Matthew, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. We need to recognize that we have an ongoing case of poverty. We will always in this lifetime need the grace of God. We will never be able to rely on ourselves. We should not imagine that we can sustain ourselves apart from God's grace. By the way, just everyone who is alive on this planet is sustained by the grace of God. Whether they're his people or not, we're made in his image. He sustains his creation. What Jesus calls his listeners, what he calls us to recognize is that the good news of the gospel requires that we recognize that we have empty hands. We might be deluded and think we have everything we need, but the reality is we are poor. Until we recognize our poverty, Christ will not be precious to us. Not until we see our needs do we see the value of something, something that is needed. I don't know about you, but I'm not, I'm not overly fond of drinking water. I'm not a big water person. Unless I'm really thirsty. And then suddenly water becomes precious to me. If you're in the middle of a desert, water is very precious to you. 
until we recognize our poverty in spirit. Yeah, it's, it's nice what Jesus has done, but we will in fact not have any place. He will not be precious to us. It'd be like a condiment on the table while we're eating a meal rather than something that sustains us and gives us life. Until we recognize our poverty, we cannot be a part of the kingdom of heaven. You see, when we are swollen with a sense of self-sufficiency, we are not able to get through the narrow gate. We are not able to get through the eye of the needle. We cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. That is why we need to recognize our true condition, our real poverty. It's very real. We just don't recognize it so often. One might ask, okay, Damon, this sounds good, but how do I know if I am poor in spirit? How do I know if I have a sense of my poverty? Well, I think, first of all, a love of Christ should mark our poverty. He is the clothing to cover our nakedness. He is the water to quench our thirst. He is the blood that gives us life. He is the wisdom from God. He is our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. When we find our love for Christ waning, don't be surprised if, in fact, we no longer consider ourselves poor, but have a sense of self-sufficiency. I think tied to a love for Christ is a love for Scripture, because it is in Scripture that we learn of Him. I think also a lack of satisfaction with yourself and your spiritual condition. Now, we should not deny God's grace, that God is working in our lives. But there should be a desire, I think, for more grace. We should have, I think, a painful realization that we lack more than we realize, in spite of all that Jesus has done for us. You might say, wait a minute, I, I don't like this. Because God's grace is sufficient. If he has given me his grace, then I am full. Am I not full? Why do I need to be poor in spirit? Let's use this analogy. Are you breathing? Have you breathed in the last minute? Wasn't that enough? Why are you still breathing? If you breathed in the last minute, why are you still breathing? So it is with God's grace. We, shall not, we should not say, yes, I've received God's grace, and so I'm fine. I'm just sort of coast into heaven. I, I'm, I've got it made. The fact is, we, in the same way that we need to keep breathing, we keep needing the grace of God. He has given us life. He has given us what we need. He is the one to sustain it. And we need to recognize that instead of saying, well, you know what? I was raised in a Christian family. I've been a Christian all my life, and I'm fine. Instead of saying, I am poor in spirit. I need the grace of God. I think another thing that shows that we have a sense of our poverty is a desire to pray. Here I find this deeply convicting. A person of poverty is always asking, he or she does this in prayer. It is the self-sufficient who find it hard to pray, who find it a burden, who find it a routine that they want to avoid. 
But a person who recognizes, apart from the grace of God, I've got nothing. And I need God's grace breath after breath after breath. Such a person, uh, prayer is a bother. Or it simply becomes routine. I asked earlier, why does Jesus start the Sermon on the Mount with these words? Why is poverty the starting point? Why is it so fundamental to the gospel? The first beatitude is, in fact, the goal of every subsequent statement that follows in the Sermon on the Mount. It is the source of the ability to live it. We'll, we'll come to this, I think, in the weeks to come. But there are some people who have argued that the Sermon on the Mount does not apply to us. It will apply to a future time in, a time in, the, in the future, uh, in the Millennial Kingdom or something like that. But that, it's just too hard for us right now. It's an ideal an idealized kingdom of heaven. Well, if we start with being poor in spirit and recognize that apart from the grace of God, we cannot do what he calls us to do, then I think we see that, no, this is in fact how we are supposed to live. We fail miserably, but we recognize, yeah, because I'm poor in spirit, and we turn to Christ moment by moment for his strength. Living when and where we do, these words, I think, are difficult to hear. But we need to hear these words. We live in a very prosperous culture. When it seems that we are almost able to buy anything, a better education, health care, insurance, insurance, by the way, for any and all types of contingencies. So we begin to have a sense of being rich and self-sufficient. I've got it covered. We need to hear the words, blessed are the poor in spirit. Plus, there's something else. I think in our culture, uh, we seem to worship the powerful individual who achieves the impossible. The one person who stands up against everything and he's able or she is able to accomplish the seemingly impossible. All of this is in the cultural air that we breathe. And it finds an ally, by the way, in our fallen natures. We like when we hear this. We're not so keen to hear, blessed are the poor in spirit. And instead of breathing in the person of Christ, we breathe in self-sufficiency. And we become so swollen that we cannot get through the narrow gate. Sadly, the church, because it's made up of human beings like us, has fallen into the trap of desiring to be rich and ignoring or rejecting the idea of poverty. We see this in the past. I think we see it in the present. In Revelation 3, uh, the angel, uh, the church at Laodicea, we hear this message, you say, I am rich. That's what the Laodiceans said. I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. The first beatitude sounds so strange to us today. I think for very different reasons than it sounded strange to its first hearers. The first hearers, they were ready to jump on this blessed. They want the blessing. What is it? What is it? And then to hear it, what's the poor in spirit? That's not what they were expecting. We know it, 
and I think we ignore it because we see ourselves as able to take care of ourselves. The culture calls us to be rich. If we're not careful, the church may tell us to be rich. But Jesus calls us to be poor, to always look to him. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We are grateful for what you have done in our lives. But we confess that the notion of being poor is repugnant to us. It is a sign of failure, culturally, economically. But also it would seem to indicate that you had turned your back on us if we are poor. Help us to hear the words of Jesus by your spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. By your spirit, help us to see our true poverty, that we are to rely upon you. We are to look to you all the time. We really don't think much of people who are dependent. When we describe someone as dependent, it's usually not a good thing. And so when we hear the words of Jesus, it really rubs us the wrong way. But this is the good news. As Jesus would say, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He came to preach the good news. He is the good news. Instead of seeking to fill our hands with all sorts of things, may they be empty so that we might receive your grace. May your spirit work in our hearts. May you open our, our eyes to see our true poverty. I thank you that you brought us together today to worship you to be with our brothers and sisters. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. We thank you on this day for the birthdays, for the reminders of your faithfulness, for Grant, for Gracie, for Mabel coming up. How good you are to us. May we never forget that we are dependent, that we are poor. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would turn in your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. One of the most familiar passages in the Gospels contains what we know as the Beatitudes. They're found at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. It's called the Sermon on the Mount, as we will see, because of where it took place. Look, if you would, in Matthew chapter 5, the first 12 verses. Now when he, that is Jesus, saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There are some who argue that this is actually a collection of sayings, a collection of isolated sayings of Jesus. I don't agree. I think that what we find at the beginning of this chapter is something that indicates it was given at one time. It was on a mountainside and Jesus was speaking. As a traveling teacher, Jesus probably repeated himself, and I would argue, many times. I think the picture we have in our heads for some reason is that whatever we read Jesus saying in one place, that was it. He said it once and he never said it again. I don't think that that's the case. I think that Jesus may have preached the Sermon on the Mount or portions of it time and time again as he traveled throughout Galilee and Judea. There were specific instances in which he had conversations with people which were unique to that situation. You think of Zacchaeus, you think of Nicodemus, uh, the Samaritan woman. And yet even what he said to them has meaning for us, it applies to us. Um, but we should not imagine that Jesus said something and that was it, because now it's, it's there, it's out there, and he will never repeat himself again. Now, part of the reason I think that people think this is because in Luke chapter 6, we have what seems to be a sh uh, uh, an abbreviated, a shrunken form of the Sermon on the Mount. There are differences, though, including the location, because Luke tells us that Jesus was on a level place. It's oftentimes called the Sermon on the Plain. Um, again, I think that Matthew and Luke are talking about two separate sermons, two separate occasions, two separate locations. As we begin, we need to ask ourselves, who was Jesus speaking to? Because if you look at the end of verse number one, it says his disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying. And so some would say that Jesus is only speaking to the disciples, the, that is the twelve. This is unlikely because as Matthew tells the story, at this point Jesus has only called four of the twelve. Plus, if you look at the end of the sermon, at the end of Matthew chapter seven, when Jesus had finished the, saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. So it was a crowd. It wasn't just the disciples. But who made up this crowd? If you go to the end of chapter 4, which leads up to chapter 5, beginning in verse number 23, we read, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread over Syria, all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, 
and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region beyond or across the Jordan followed him. I think what we find in the crowds that were listening to this sermon are those who are broken, those who have suffered, those who perhaps were still in pain or may have been in pain, those who are despairing. And so it is striking that at the beginning of the sermon, Jesus starts with the word blessed. I hope this does not sound uh, wrong, but I think if I were reorganizing this sermon, I wouldn't have started with the Beatitudes because I think the heart of the sermon is actually begins in verse number 13 when he talks about you are the, si- the salt of the earth. And um, I think that that's really what the sermon revolves around. Uh, I assume Jesus knew what he was doing when he began with the Beatitudes. Verses 3 to 11 contain the Beatitudes. Each one begins with the word blessed. We call them the Beatitudes because the word in Latin is beatus, for blessed, and thus we have the Beatitudes. There are two things worth noting before we get into this. First of all, the form of the Beatitude is not unique to this sermon. It is actually found in the book of Psalms. Let me just read to you some examples. The book of Psalms itself begins with the Beatitude, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. Psalm 32, blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Psalm 65, blessed are those you choose and bring near to live in your courts. We are filled with the good things of your house and of your holy temple. Psalm 84, O Lord Almighty, blessed is the man who trusts in you. And then Psalm 144, blessed are the people of whom this is true. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. It's a familiar form, and particularly to Jesus' audience as he spoke the Sermon on the Mount, they knew the form of the beatitude. But with it came certain expectations, and this is the second thing. The concept of blessedness was also familiar to his audience. Generally speaking, and we looked at this about a year and a half ago, bestowing of good is what is seen as a blessing. When we hear of God blessing someone, he bestows some good thing on them. And so a beatitude carries with it an expectation of God bestowing some good thing, some blessing on a person or on people. Some have argued that the Beatitudes, particularly in this sermon, are based on Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61. Let me read to you. After his baptism and after his temptation in the wilderness, we read, this is in Luke 4, he, that is Jesus, went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is what Jesus said to his townmates, the people he had grown up with, grown up around. I would argue that what we find in the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus saying in another way, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Because he begins by proclaiming the Lord's favor with the Beatitudes. And the audience is ready. Some of these people had suffered and have been healed. They want to hear what Jesus has to say. I think some of them still need to be healed, have not yet been healed. They are broken. They are in despair. And so they hear the word blessed as Jesus begins to teach. They know the form. They have expectations of God's favor being poured out on them. I can almost imagine a group of people sitting together, and as Jesus begins to speak, begins to preach, and he says, blessed, and someone poking his buddy and said, this is going to be good. This is going to be good stuff. And what Jesus says is completely contrary to their expectations. What he says next is not what they are expecting. I would argue that it's still the same for us today. Those of us who are raised in church, we know the Beatitudes at some point, maybe even memorize them. But the word blessed or bless or blessing, we have certain expectations. And I think I could do an entire series on these words. In fact, I have. And yet when we hear the word blessed, our minds go in a different direction than what we hear from Jesus. Jesus begins and says, blessed are the poor in spirit. You know, when you think of someone who is blessed by God, do you think of someone who is poor or poor in spirit? I think our minds go in the opposite direction. The poor may be thought of as neglected by God or perhaps even rejected by God. That's why they're poor. We certainly don't see them as blessed. We don't see them as the recipients of God's favor. By the way, just a side note to, to clear things up. In the account in Luke, Jesus said, blessed are the poor. And here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. So is it poor or poor in spirit? Um, the passage that Jesus read from in his hometown in Isaiah 61 speaks of the poor. So again, which one is it? I actually think there's not a conflict at all. In Matthew 11, John the Baptist is in prison. And he's heard about Jesus. I mean, he baptized him. But I think that what Jesus was doing was what, not what John expected. I think John expected something much more radical. And so he sent some of his disciples to talk to Jesus. Are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. I think the question we should ask is not, is it the poor or the poor in spirit, is what does Jesus mean and to whom is he referring the word that Jesus uses doesn't simply refer to someone who is in poverty. 
someone who is poor. Rather, it indicates someone who is a beggar, someone who cringes or cowers, someone who is either fearful or dependent on others to survive. It isn't simply someone who is lower class, if you wish. This is someone who has no means of support. He or she is a beggar. So Jesus is not speaking of passive poverty, of being in the lower socioeconomic stratum, if you wish. He's speaking of someone who actively knows, I am poor, someone who is a beggar, someone who is utterly dependent upon God. This is what we find in the Psalms time and time again. Jesus is speaking of those who know that they are poor. Psalm 40, David says, Yet I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Oh my God, do not delay. In Isaiah 57, For this is what the high and lofty one says, He who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. It might help us, it does in other cases, to look at the opposite of what it means to be poor, to have a better understanding of what is going on. In scripture, what does it mean to be rich? What does it mean to be rich? Generally, it refers or it points to a sense of self-sufficiency, that someone thinks they've got it made. They have all that they need, They don't need anyone else. They don't even need God's favor. They don't need to be blessed. They have all that they want. In some sense, a striving to be rich is to achieve a sense of invulnerability. That in fact, your life will not encounter any unforeseen possibilities. You will not have any bumps in the road There will be no surprises, no mysteries, no unknowns. Everything will happen just as you think that it should. What feeds this illusion, if you wish, is material wealth. That if I have enough money, then I can smooth out whatever bumps there are in the road. And if there are some occasional surprises, I'm able to deal with them because I have the financial wherewithal to do so. As Jesus begins to proclaim the good news, as he says to people, today this is fulfilled in your hearing, he calls his listeners, he calls us to a life of poverty, an acknowledging of our true state. Why does, why does he say poor in spirit? Particularly if there's no difference between being poor or poor in spirit, why not simply say blessed are the poor? Um, the phrase poor in spirit speaks of the inner person, that which cannot be seen, but it also speaks of in truth or truly. That is, Jesus is saying that those who are in truth poor, those who look to God, who are dependent upon him, they are the ones who are blessed. Most human beings, I think, whether we are rich or poor, middle class, lower class, it doesn't matter, it is a tendency to seek to be secure apart from God. And as such, we are not poor in spirit. We are, in fact, poor. We just don't realize that we are. The poor do not always want to remain in ongoing poverty. 
They do not always want to have to rely on others. We don't always want to have to ask somebody else for help. We don't want to be dependent upon someone else. We want to be self-reliant, self-sufficient. We want to be independent. We want to be rich, not poor. But God's favor rests on those who rely on him, those who are poor in spirit, those who realize that they have nothing of their own to sustain them. The reality is no one can, in fact, sustain himself or herself. People who think that they do or they can are deluded. They are living a lie. Okay, let's say for the sake of argument that Jesus is right. What is the blessedness? What is the blessing that comes from being poor in spirit? Well, if you look at the second part of the verse, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, that sounds good, but what does it mean? What does it mean? To remind you, Jesus is saying in this sermon that he is the fulfillment of scripture. Today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament law and prophets. He is the good news. It is worth noting that in this verse, verse 3 and in verse number 10, we find the same blessing for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the tense of the verb is present. Unlike the other Beatitudes, for they will be comforted. They will inherit the earth. They will be filled. They will be shown mercy. They will see God. They will be called sons of God. Jesus is speaking of a present reality. The promises of the Old Testament are fulfilled today, Jesus is saying. The time is now. The favor of God rests. It is seen in the person of Jesus. This is the good news. So why does Jesus start the Sermon on the Mount with these words? Why is poverty the starting point? Why is it so fundamental to the gospel of the kingdom? Well, you see, until we recognize our poverty, we are not capable of receiving God's grace. When a person sees himself or herself as rich, then there is no place for favor, for God's grace to be given to them. If your hands are full of things, then where is the room for God's grace? There is no room for it. You cannot receive. You can't take anything else on. You can't hold on to any more. We must, in fact, see ourselves as poor, our hands as empty. We sang the hymn today, Rock of Ages. One of the verses that said, In my hand no price I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Francis Schaeffer used to talk about raising the empty hands of faith. Poor people have empty hands. Rich people have full hands, and therefore there is no place for God's grace. They cannot be blessed. They cannot receive God's favor because they've got, they imagine that they've got everything that they need. They need. Until we are emptied of self, God's grace or favor will not be poured out on us. Jesus would say later in Matthew, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. We need to recognize that we have an ongoing case of poverty. We will always in this lifetime need the grace of God. We will never be able to rely on ourselves. We should not imagine that we can sustain ourselves apart from God's grace. By the way, just 
everyone who is alive on this planet is sustained by the grace of God. Whether they're his people or not, we're made in his image, he sustains his creation. What Jesus calls his listeners, what he calls us to recognize is that the good news of the gospel requires that we recognize that we have empty hands. We might be deluded and think we have everything we need, but the reality is we are poor. Until we recognize our poverty, Christ will not be precious to us. Not until we see our needs do we see the value of something, something that is needed. See, I don't know about you, I'm not, I'm not overly fond of drinking water. I'm not a big water person. Unless I'm really thirsty. And then suddenly water becomes precious to me. If you're in the middle of a desert, water is very precious to you. Until we recognize our poverty in spirit. Yeah, it's, it's nice what Jesus has done, but we will in fact not have any place. He will not be precious to us. It'd be like a condiment on the table while we're eating a meal rather than something that sustains us and gives us life. Until we recognize our poverty, we cannot be a part of the kingdom of heaven. You see, when we are swollen with a sense of self-sufficiency, we're not able to get through the narrow gate. We're not able to get through the eye of the needle. We cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. That is why we need to recognize our true condition, our real poverty. It's very real. We just don't recognize it so often. One might ask, okay, Damon, this sounds good, but how do I know if I am poor in spirit? How do I know if I have a sense of my poverty? Well, I think, first of all, a love of Christ should mark our poverty. He is the clothing to cover our nakedness. He is the water to quench our thirst. He is the blood that gives us life. He is the wisdom from God. He is our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. When we find our love for Christ waning, don't be surprised if, in fact, we no longer consider ourselves poor but have a sense of self-sufficiency. I think tied to a love for Christ is a love for Scripture because it is in Scripture that we learn of Him. I think also a lack of satisfaction with yourself and your spiritual condition. Now, we should not deny God's grace, that God is working in our lives, but there should be a desire, I think, for more grace. We should have, I think, a painful realization that we lack more than we realize in spite of all that Jesus has done for us. You might say, wait a minute, I, I don't like this. Because God's grace is sufficient. If he has given me his grace, then I am full. Am I not full? Why do I need to be poor in spirit? Let's use this analogy. Are you breathing? Have you breathed in the last minute? Wasn't that enough? Why are you still breathing? If you breathed in the last minute, why are you still breathing? So it is with God's grace. We, shall not, we should not say, yes, I've received God's grace and so I'm fine, I'm just sort of coast into heaven, I, I'm, I've got it made. 
fact is we, in the same way that we need to keep breathing, we keep needing the grace of God. He has given us life. He has given us what we need. He is the one to sustain it. And we need to recognize that instead of saying, well, you know what? I was raised in a Christian family. I've been a Christian all my life and I'm fine. Instead of saying, I am poor in spirit. I need the grace of God. I think another thing that shows that we have a sense of our poverty is a desire to pray. Here I find this deeply convicting. A person of poverty is always asking, he or she does this in prayer. It is the self-sufficient who find it hard to pray, who find it a burden, who find it a routine that they want to avoid. But a person who recognizes, apart from the grace of God, I've got nothing and I need God's grace breath after breath after breath. Such a person, uh, prayer is a bother, or it simply becomes routine. I asked earlier, why does Jesus start the Sermon on the Mount with these words? Why is poverty the starting point? Why is it so fundamental to the gospel? The first beatitude is, in fact, the goal of every subsequent statement that follows in the Sermon on the Mount. It is the source of the ability to live it. We'll, we'll come to this, I think, in the weeks to come. But there are some people who have argued that the Sermon on the Mount does not apply to us. It will apply to a future time in, a time in, the, in the future, uh, in the Millennial Kingdom or something like that. But that, it's just too hard for us right now. It's an ideal an idealized kingdom of heaven. Well, if we start with being poor in spirit and recognize that apart from the grace of God, we cannot do what he calls us to do, then I think we see that, no, this is in fact how we are supposed to live. We fail miserably, but we recognize, yeah, because I'm poor in spirit, and we turn to Christ moment by moment for his strength. Living when and where we do, these words, I think, are difficult to hear. But we need to hear these words. We live in a very prosperous culture. When it seems that we are almost able to buy anything, a better education, health care, insurance, insurance, by the way, for any and all types of contingencies. So we begin to have a sense of being rich and self-sufficient. I've got it covered. We need to hear the words, blessed are the poor in spirit. Plus, there's something else. I think in our culture, uh, we seem to worship the powerful individual who achieves the impossible. The one person who stands up against everything and he's able or she is able to accomplish the seemingly impossible. All of this is in the cultural air that we breathe. And it finds an ally, by the way, in our fallen natures. We like when we hear this. We're not so keen to hear, blessed are the poor in spirit. And instead of breathing in the person of Christ, we breathe in self-sufficiency. 
and we become so swollen that we cannot get through the narrow gate. Sadly, the church, because it's made up of human beings like us, has fallen into the trap of desiring to be rich and ignoring or rejecting the idea of poverty. We see this in the past. I think we see it in the present. In Revelation 3, uh, the angel, uh, the church at Laodicea, we hear this message, you say, I am rich. That's what the Laodiceans said. I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. The first beatitude sounds so strange to us today. I think for very different reasons than it sounded strange to its first hearers. The first hearers, they were ready to jump on this blessed. They want the blessing. What is it? What is it? And then to hear it, what's the poor in spirit? That's not what they were expecting. We know it, and I think we ignore it because we see ourselves as able to take care of ourselves. The culture calls us to be rich. If we're not careful, the church may tell us to be rich. But Jesus calls us to be poor, to always look to him. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We are grateful for what you have done in our lives. But we confess that the notion of being poor is repugnant to us. It is a sign of failure, culturally, economically. But also it would seem to indicate that you had turned your back on us if we are poor. Help us to hear the words of Jesus by your spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. By your spirit, help us to see our true poverty, that we are to rely upon you. We are to look to you all the time. We really don't think much of people who are dependent. When we describe someone as dependent, it's usually not a good thing. And so when we hear the words of Jesus, it really rubs us the wrong way. But this is the good news. As Jesus would say, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He came to preach the good news. He is the good news. Instead of seeking to fill our hands with all sorts of things, may they be empty so that we might receive your grace. May your spirit work in our hearts. May you open our, our eyes to see our true poverty. I thank you that you brought us together today to worship you, to be with our brothers and sisters. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. We thank you on this day 
for the birthdays, for the reminders of your faithfulness, for Grant, for Gracie, for Mabel coming up. How good you are to us. May we never forget that we are dependent, that we are poor. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.